is the love of God and its implications. Uh, I had a friend uh, with a really tough background. Uh, I'm 47. He's about my age. We didn't know each other as kids. It was a terrible, really sad background. Tough. Uh, he joined the army, fought in the Falklands. And uh, when he came back, he was ruined. He, he was ruined, really. He'd seen things he never dreamt he would see in his life. And this bloke, 20 years ago, could empty a room in three minutes. If he got into a conversation, you'd just drift out as soon as you could get away. Because it was a nightmare conversation to be in with him. This blog knew Jesus. But if your picture of a Christian is somebody who is basically nice and tidy and respectful and respectable, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things, if you met this bloke, you'd say, Look, he's not a Christian, not a chance. He's a nightmare, not a chance. Over time, if you knew that bloke and you watched him over the years, if you met him today, he'd empty a room in 15 minutes. But if you knew him, you'd say, what a change in that bloke. Dramatic, enormous change, but not very easily visible. If you haven't watched the path, if you've not been in the room. What is a Christian? What is the love of God and its implications? What does it really mean when the rubber hits the road in everyday life behind your front door? Not in a nice world where we all go, hello, how are you? Very nice. Good to meet you. Lovely. No, 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 no. Where it really matters. Where they can see the real me. Let's turn. There's a Bible there uh, in, the, in the seat in front of you. I'm on page 1227. 1227. It's a, a letter in the New Testament of the Bible called John. First letter by a man called John. In this letter written a long time ago, the man's aim is twofold. First, he wrote a letter. If you read it through, he wrote it, first of all, to say that you've got to believe the right things about Jesus to know God. If you believe the wrong things, you can't know the God that he's supposed to be talking about. Look with me, if you have a Bible in front of you, at 1 John chapter 4, and at the bottom of that paragraph... The little six, number six, verse six. The writer says, we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. The writer, John, knew Jesus. He was with Jesus. And he had the authoritative account of Jesus. And he's writing here that there are people around who say that what the people who knew Jesus closest said about him wasn't quite accurate, and they had more truth to offer. 
This letter was written firstly to say, don't you dare listen to people who don't say the things that those people who are with Jesus said is true. Don't let them twist it or tweak it. Today that means the Bible. Check everything against the Bible. It's not the clever speaker, or the brainy person, or the flamboyant personality that you look to for truth, but what the people who are with Jesus and authorized to tell us about him said. That's one of his major themes in the letter. We'll focus today, though, on the second one. If it's not the truth of the Bible, be careful. But also, and a bit less clinical, actually, a bit less forensic, the second one, you can't separate a lifestyle of profound love in the human soul if you want to spot a Christian. You've got to have the right truths, but don't ever separate. That's our passage today. Don't separate that from a heart of love, real love, like gutsy love, not pretend love, not social love. They cannot be separated according to the Bible. And that's what we're after in this passage. Let's read verses 7 to 12 together. And note as we read it that the phrase love one another comes up three times. Verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Can I put it to you this morning that any claim to believe in God without the evidence of a heart that is growing in love is very much at risk of being a false claim to believe in God. I'll just say that again because it sounds so judgmental. And I hope the rest of the time unpacks why the Bible calls us out on this. If anyone today claims to believe in God, but when watched closely by those who know them very best over a longish period of time, there is very little evidence of a heart that is being transformed by authentic love then it's time to set the alarm bells ringing about our claim to belief in God. And I think we find at least three things in this passage from the Bible that point us to that claim. Firstly then, let's look at 7 to 8. God is love, verses 7 to 8. God is love means we must love one another. Let's read 7 and 8 again. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. In so many ways, the Bible is practical and not philosophical. 
It never discusses or tries to unpack the idea of God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if you come from a Muslim background or have any experience of working in a Muslim culture or context, and there'll be some in this room who appreciate this very much, but it can help us all, I think. Very often, the first question that will come in discussing Christianity in such a culture is, wait a minute, don't Christians believe that God is three and one? What is that all about? There's one God, only one God. How can one be three and three be one? What a rubbish starting point for a religion. And working in a Muslim culture, very often for a Christian, it's the first question that is thrown because it is illogical. There's no such thing as three things being one thing. And people grow up for pictures like the sun has rays and heat. And so the three things make one thing really because they're all one. And How hard is that to get? Water is made up of C2O. So it's one thing, but it's three things. My brain hurts already. I'm Welsh. The Bible doesn't do philosophy on this one. But John, for example, in his explanation of the life of Jesus in a book called The Good News of John in the New Testament, has one guy called Thomas at the end of the story looking at Jesus who has gone to a cross. He hasn't seen him since he came from a grave. And he sees Jesus and Jesus goes, look at them. There's nails through there. Look, but I'm alive. And Thomas says... My Lord and my God. He uses the name that the Jews would use for God. It's not like the disciples sat down one day and said, let's have a think about this. Because if there's three of them and there's one and there's sun and there's heat and there's light, and mm, we could make a bit of a... No, they had no option. They just saw this man who lived on earth and they said, oh, this is outrageous. He he'd stops storms. He heals sick people. I mean, it's outrageous. What, what can he do? He beat death. Is he God? See, the Trinity is entirely practical. It's not some, a philosophy. It was an inescapable logic that effectively came from the observation of Jesus and then his spirit being able to do the things that they thought God did. Trinity makes sense in this context. God is love. God has never been lonely. Well, once actually. Can you imagine when that might be? When he was flung on a cross. He was lonely then. God has never been lonely in all of eternity. Because God is community. Because God is three in one. Because God is love. Now do you see the first point here? If God is love, then anyone who claims to know God is claiming to be part of a very being, of a personality who is the personality behind the universe, who has never, ever, 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 ever known anything but complete commitment, love and dedication. So take the five languages of love. For eternity, I mean, it's beyond our grasp, but you just have to think of somebody you love very deeply 
who's never let you down. It's pretty much impossible, isn't it? But think of the people who love you the most, who have let you down the least in life, and the amazing strength that it gives you to know that you can trust them, right? Think of that multiplied by infinity to eternity. And the Trinity of God has always loved. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves Him back. The Spirit loves the Son. The Spirit loves the Father. The love is total and immense and like stuck to each other. That's what God's like. And guess who He made? Guess who the pinnacle of His creation is? You are. So you claim to know God? What are you going to be like? Like Him. What's that look like? Love. That's what it looks like. And look at the verses there. Have a look down at it. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. It's pretty inescapable. And look at verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Ah, meet my pal. And you'd see a guy and he'd say, God, he's a bit of a nightmare mate, isn't he? Hey, come back with me five years and see him now. God, what a change. What a change in compassion for other people. Asking questions about how they are. Caring for them. Authentically wanting to make a difference to somebody else. And not think about himself. Tiny gains. Enormous. Because the God of love has got into his life. That's why. You'd never judge him if you're not in the room because you don't know. Here's a question for me. But that's a device to ask it to you. As you grow older, are you getting more cynical? Well, you're bound to be a bit, right? Because we've seen it, got the T-shirt at a certain age. But sarcastic cynicism is not the mark of love. The mark of love is that grandparent of mine whose eyes sparkle with life, even as she is dying of a disease that will take her any time. It's the light in the eyes. It's the person who's lived a long time knowing Jesus who says, How are you today? And you want to say, how am I? You're so sick, you can hardly move. And all you want to talk about is me. How does that happen? Compare that to getting cynical, mean-spirited, because you're fed up of living, because you've seen it all, and it's all happened before, and you're just fed up with it. This is Christianity. It is not airy-fairy. It is not super-spiritual. It is not cultural, is it? It's a God getting a grip on the heart of a human being and say, right, love's in, let's go. And it's a lifelong work that he attacks the absence of love with. Or everybody fails badly. But not so badly that behind that front door over the years, there should be some observation of a self-sacrificial attitude to those around you. That can only come from the power of the Trinity of God as He comes to live in us. God is love means that we must love one another. Secondly, verses 9 to 11, God has loved us in Christ means we must love one another. Verse 9 to 11, 
This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we, ought, we also ought to love one another. We move in the second of three reasons why, if you claim to believe in God, and I know I say it broad like God, so let's pin it down if you like. If you claim to be a Christian, I think it covers both bases. It's linguistics, really. If you claim belief or faith without evidence of love, however accurate your claims to truth and beliefs to the Bible, be careful, says John. For this second reason, we move in verse 9 from God's being to his actions in history. God is love. What did God do, this whole being of eternity? What did he do? What did he do in space and time? He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Quite dangerous sometimes when, when you say, I love Jesus. Probably a bit healthier to say, Jesus loves me. Because <laughs> if I had to keep a diary through a day of how many times I feel that I'm really loving Jesus, it would be probably a bit short on the ticks in the time slots but I'd have to pack every minute of every hour of every day with the fact that Jesus loves me despite it all. Oh no, he came because of love for me. And look at verse 10 there. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How can you draw this? If you're in a home and a relationship and a community with tremendous love, Fallible love, yes, but the people around you care for you. You love them, they love you. You've got pals, you've got mates. And somebody asks you to leave that community, to go somewhere else where it's going to be really hard and you're going to be hated in that place. But they say, go for the sake of the people there. What a horrible decision to have to make. Leave here now, push off from Edinburgh. Go on, you've been here a long time. On you go. Go somewhere else where you won't know anyone, where they won't respect you. We've got no history. You've got no basis for being thought of as anyone. Go, go. It's such a pale and pathetic illustration that God himself decided that he would leave a place of perfect love and complete respect and complete joy and contentment and happiness to come here for me and for you when we are the ones who said, you might be there, but I'm in charge. It's just my life. It's fine. I don't mind religion. I don't mind Christianity. I don't mind these Jesus things. But it is my life. And I'll do it my way. Thank you very much. Oh, I, can, I can respect it. It's a culture where we ought to respect each other's beliefs. And, but it's mine. He would come for you. Can, can I just pause there? He... Politely, you might laugh in his face. Somehow we've got to strip away the veneer of, of our culture, of our behavior. If you're willing to come to this room this morning, many of you will have followed Jesus for many years. And this will be perhaps, remember that it's about love in action, not just theory. Doctrinal 
security and correctness, yes. Love, yes. For someone who's here but is thinking, I don't know where I really stand. I come from the background of a chapel or a church. I, I'm visiting. I've come in. I'm a visitor. I'm at the festival. Can you, can you even think for a moment that there's a creator of the universe? We, we go around one sun. There are nine planets. We're on one of them. There are 100 million suns in this galaxy. And so they say, the books say, there's 100 million other galaxies. It always seems to be 100 million. Uh, and uh, there's somebody who made it all, who made it all, came into this one and came for us and came to reach us when he didn't have to, when we didn't want to know. What a remarkable thing he's done. And when he died on the cross, he died there. The word is atoning sacrifice. It means that I was guilty, that you are guilty. This is the most unpalatable message in the world. But once you get it, you go, this is it. It's not for the religious ones. It's not for the nice ones only. Everybody's guilty. God is perfectly holy. He hates evil. He hates wrong. He can't stand it. When time comes to an end, he'll do something about it. Nobody will get away with it. Rapists, murderers, thieves, liars, adulterers. No one gets away with it. Not just a child molester. None of us get away with it. None of us will get away with anything we did that he told us not to do. So we're doomed. It doesn't look like it in this life because you bang along, you bang along, but we are and we have to stand before him. And do you know what he did? So that you and I don't have to take the judgment for that. He came and took it. He never did anything wrong and he took it. And when he took it, do you know what he says to us? There's only two things we have to do. If you get this this morning, you say, I'm so sorry. Well, there must be more than that. No, there isn't. I'm so sorry. It's never occurred to me before that you took this for me. I'm so sorry, and I'll take it. Thank you. Well, there must be more to being a Christian than that. No, there isn't. Say sorry, and put your faith in Jesus. But look at the consequence, verse 11. Since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Are there moments in your life, can I ask you this, are there moments in your life when you don't want to love somebody else and something in your heart, your mind, your psyche says, love because Jesus loved you, don't get angry at him. Don't pout now, don't do it. Jesus loved you, you love him now when you want to give him a smack. No, no, but these are the marks of God. God is love. God came in love. And if there's a trace of that love, please look for it if you claim faith. Please look for it. It's not in a public arena. It's not in a chapel building that you mark this. It's behind the front door where they know you. It's in the office where you're very familiar with people. Just a trace that says, I'm not going to have a go. Because somebody loved me when I deserve nothing. She doesn't deserve love. No, but she's getting it from me. <laughs> no, but it is like that. It's gritted teeth, isn't it? Well, it's never like this, is it? Oh, she deserves love now. I'll give her some love, even though I can't stand the way she's behaving. It's never like that, is it? 
But God is love, and God came to love, and God showed love, and God brings love, and he brings a mindset that sees that. Or we fail it time and time again. But my friends, the fact that we're broken doesn't mean that there's not a hint or a taste of the power of God changing us like this. And we should crave for more of it and ask him for the strength to see it. Finally, verse 12. The evidence that God lives in us and is changing us is that we love one another. Very similar on the surface to the other two points, but let's dig it a bit. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We've moved from the being of God in the first point to God in history in the second, and finally to God in the experience of the daily life of a Christian. Extremely explicitly. Nobody has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. You see that verse? John, the writer of this letter, when he wrote his account of the life of Jesus, in the first chapter of John's Gospel, in verse 18, he writes this, No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who was at the Father's side, has made him known. He talks about Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, Jesus, has made God known. But he starts the phrase with this, no one has ever seen God. Look in his letter in verse 12, he writes this, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Nobody's ever seen God is a real problem. How do you talk about God if no one's ever seen him? It's always a discussion if you speak at a, an event where people can ask questions. How can you prove it? What is the evidence? Where is the basis? The Bible offers two things here in the New Testament. One, go and look for Jesus. Do the history. No one has ever seen God, but God has come in Jesus. So do the history. Find out what happened. He came in space and time. And it only gives one other indication in the New Testament. And there it is, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. But if we lo love one another, God lives in us and is made complete in us. What is the second way that you can prove God exists? Point to Jesus. I mean, this is outrageous. The second one is somebody who doesn't know God because they don't know Jesus knows you and they see Jesus in you. Is that it? Is that what the New Testament has to say about how people can know God? Yes. Oh, yes. This is exactly how it works. It's a remarkable claim, isn't it, this one? Telling others the good news of Jesus cannot be separated from a lifestyle of love, can it? I mean, how dangerous is that? I am sound. I know the truth. I have a gospel truth, and so we should if we're Christians. There are biblical truths that we must cling to. And we mustn't bend on them. That's half the theme of this letter. But separating what Jesus did for us on the cross from a lifestyle where your friend or your family or your work colleague or your schoolmate looks at you and says, why did you do that? Why, did, why didn't you do that when she did that to you? 
This is the way Jesus is seen in the life of a believer. Now it makes your life extremely precious. And I think it bodes me to ask me and to ask you, if you profess belief, could you go home today and say, well, when was the last time somebody said, why did you do that? I mean, that was such a kind thing to do. Why didn't you get really, really mad when that happened? How, how do you manage that? Such behavior is just an indicator that the love of God can be seen in the behavior, authentic behavior, of a Christian. And it's John's thrust here. So, as we draw to a conclusion, what is the love of God and its implications? Well, my pal, who had the roughest first 15 years of life imaginable, and then saw things he would never have dreamt of seeing in his life before he was 20. If he said to me, does he know God? I mean, he's a nightmare. I'd say, my friend, I've seen love in that man, transformed in a way which bears no resemblance to a middle-class background with a certain type of education and social norms, which are not bad things. But I see love in that boy in a way that I could write a book about. If you wouldn't say you're a Christian this morning or you're not sure, it could be the first time you've heard anything, you could have heard many times a message from the Bible. Could I ask you this question? Will you consider the fact that God loves you so much that he gave up the most amazing love for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and he tore away from it to be smashed to bits, laughed at and scorned and put on a cross to take a punishment that you deserved. It's not the person next to you. And the way to receive that forgiveness is very unsophisticated to say sorry that you've never acted on this before. Sorry for turning against God for all these years, even if they're 10 years, and accepting what Jesus did by believing that he's done it for you. This is then what makes somebody a Christian, a follower of Christ, saying sorry and believing. Maybe that's for you today. And really, for 2,000 years, people have said, can that be for me today? You say, yes. Yes, because it is all of God, his love for you. He's come to reach you. Accept. And secondly, for those who would say, yes, I do believe in Jesus Christ, actually. Is your belief marked by any of this indication of love? Will you reflect on that today? Because giving and receiving love is the greatest thing in the world to do. Who cares for me? Who will befriend me? Who is interested in me? Who wants to hear what I have to say behind my front door? Who wants to hear what I have to say at school? 
at work in the street with my next door neighbor who's really interested in me if they don't really like me if I'm an unpopular person will it be the people of Jesus Christ who are first to go the first to show love against the odds because these are the marks of a Christian and it is this kind of love that leads to somebody asking the question why did you do this which is what often leads people to faith over the generations in Jesus name we offer these words Amen well let's have a look at our last hymn together